Hello and welcome back to Millennial Ag, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valen Likely and Catherine Lotspeech. Listeners, welcome back to this week's episode. I should have looked before we jumped on, but I think we're at like episode 98 or 99. So I know it's not 100, but we're definitely knocking, knocking on 100, which will be a big milestone and we'll make sure to let you know. But as you've noticed that I have Catherine back here this week. So Catherine, <laughs> how is being a mom? Um, crazy and delightful. I could not have imagined it while I was pregnant because I was not one of those happy pregnant people, but being a mom is amazing. It's a true delight and, um, really couldn't be more excited and happy about it. So there's been some sleepless nights, but really overall, we have a pretty good baby and she's happy and she's healthy. And that's really all we can ask for. So that's pretty cool, but it's really great to be back on millennial lag too. (laughs) Well, we're excited to have you. And I was supposed to come to Colorado next week and squish those tummy cheeks, but other people had other plans for me. So um, I've been told that planning is not a luxury. And so I'm going with the flow and we're going to see what life <laughs> throws at me. Um, but I'm I'm super excited to, to come meet her um, in person, but I've loved the picture. So without any further ado, we do have a guest on here um, this week. Mr. Tanner Beamer is with us. Um, he's He works for NCBA and I'll let him describe his role and everything, but I've come to know Tanner through my brother and through the University of Idaho and through a lot of cattle associations. So Tanner is a fun, dynamic guest and we're excited to um, pick his brain on some policy that we might be a little delayed in talking about, but I think it, it, it's going to stir some really good conversation about what's to come as well. So Tanner, thank you for joining us um, and also tell listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks for having me on today, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, like Valine said, uh, we've known each other for uh, quite a while through a couple different capacities. I think the first time I met her was at the famous Idaho Potato Bowl, uh, where the Vandals took on the CSU Rams. And as I recall, I think the Vandals might have won that particular game. Uh, but then from there on out, uh, you know, uh, families close together and uh, grew up really close to each other in the Magic Valley, as a matter of fact, before uh, she went off to do cool things in the Colorado area before returning back home. And uh, I unfortunately have not returned home yet and have relocated to Washington, D.C. So uh, I work for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association in the Center for Public Policy, which is the lobbying arm on the policy division side of that organization. Uh, my title is Director of Government Affairs and Market Regulatory Policy, which is a mouthful that basically just means that I am the lead lobbyist on all things cattle markets and things that kind of touch these supply chain and impact the producer's ability to turn a profit. Uh, And so definitely in the last 18 months with the coronavirus, there's been a lot of things moving in that uh, space, a lot of discussions about profitability on cattle markets issues. And uh, I've been involved to some degree in a, a bulk of those discussions, both on Capitol Hill within the federal agencies, and then also out with uh, producers out in the country trying to identify the best path forward. So uh, that's a little bit of background on me. Well, again, thank you for joining us. Um So a few weeks ago, Catherine and I kind of had noticed that Cory Booker introduced a bill. Um, The headline kind of caught our attention because factory farming was thrown in there, um, reforming farm systems. And because we've been in this sector long enough to know our guards went up, we don't we don't know a lot about it. We haven't dove into it, but we've kind of wanted to dive into it. So can you 
kind of explain what what that bill is um, and what's kind of behind some of that? Yeah. So uh, before I kind of dive into the bill, what's interesting is you mentioned it, uh, Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey. Uh, he's introduced this piece of legislation for a couple different Congresses now. Um, thankfully for farmers and ranchers, it has never really picked up steam. It's never advanced through the legislative process, but it has been something that he has reintroduced with some degree of consistency over the last several years that he's been a member of Congress. What's interesting about this go round, however, is that um, at the beginning of this new Congress back in January, Senator Booker was actually appointed to the Senate Agriculture Committee, which is very, very interesting because he himself is a vegan uh, and is very, very uh, forthright about his decision not to consume animal products. And he has some very extreme and radical views on animal agriculture. And a lot of those views are encapsulated in this legislation that he has introduced. Um, he has a, a counterpart in the House of Representatives, Rep. Uh, Ro Khanna from California, who's introduced companion legislation. So it is in the House and the Senate being considered at the same time. And so that Farm Systems Reform Act does a ton of different things. Uh, the perhaps most frightening thing that it does is it would uh, place a moratorium on the construction of new concentrated animal feeding operations, which in the cattle space, that's a feedlot. And so that's something that is obviously very concerning for us because our business model is very much based upon uh, a system wherein cattle are backgrounded on grass, and then they spend some time in the feedlot uh, before they end up going to the packer. And there are a lot of feedlots spread across the country, um, but most of them are concentrated in the Midwest, uh, anywhere from Texas all the way up as far north as southern Minnesota, that is where the bulk of the cattle feeding is done in this country. And most of those uh, yards and lots uh, have capacities that can exceed even 150,000. Uh, for, for Westerners, you know, I think the largest one is probably out at Bruno, Idaho with Simplot's uh, facility out there. I think that has a capacity of about 135,000. Um, and, and these are, are really, really hyper efficient at what they're doing in turning cattle into the beef that you can oftentimes find in grocery store shelves or at those white tablecloth restaurants. So a, a moratorium on CAFOs is, is highly concerning. But in addition to that, it takes it a step further. It says any new uh, concentrated animal feeding operation would have a limit of a thousand head. And uh, cattle feeding is a little bit different from a business model perspective than say a stalker backgrounder or a cow-calf operator. They're very heavily margin dependent, meaning that they're trying to buy, they're buying a, a feeder uh, animal, whether it's a steer or a heifer, they're running them through that feed yard, uh, putting inputs into them, whether that's corn or wheat or silage or any number of other feed additives. And they're hoping that they can then sell that finished steer or finished heifer for enough money to cover the cost of purchasing that animal and then adding in all the feed additives. Um, and so the best way to ensure that that margin is big enough to where they're going to maintain profitability is to have scalability and efficiency. Economies of scale play an absolutely critical role in ensuring profitability at the feeding sector. And so this particular piece of legislation is very dangerous for that. And as a matter of fact, you know, there is a very uh, small segment of our industry that is 100% grass-fed beef, uh, where the animals 
uh, typically don't enter a feedlot as part of that production system. But it's not uh, it's not the the most common way uh, that we raise cattle, and so that's that's highly concerning. Uh, and that's just one element of the bill, and probably the one that is is most threatening to the industry. But kind of at a sub level, it brings back a lot of old arguments: uh, packer owner ban on cattle, uh, amending the Packers and Stockyards Act to put minimum uh, cash trade uh, provisions in there, and then also it would bring back mandatory country of origin labeling, uh, which is a battle that has been fought and lost at the World Trade Organization many times. If the United States were to reimpose mandatory country of origin labeling, it would bring back uh, about a billion dollars in retaliatory tariffs from two of our largest markets being our neighbors, Canada and Mexico. Um, so this is this is the latest in in one of Senator Booker's campaign to reform the way that we think about food and all of our food systems. Um, but we talked about that, you know, that in and of itself, looking at the way that we produce food in this country and asking ourselves, is there a way we could be doing this better? Is there a way we could be doing this more efficiently? Those types of conversations aren't bad in and of themselves. But from Senator Booker's perspective, you know, there's there's just an unwillingness to to have that conversation with actual producers on the ground. As a matter of fact, there was a, a Senate Agriculture Committee hearing uh, several weeks ago that was looking at supply chain issues and competition issues within the cattle markets all the way down to your end beef consumer. And Senator Booker used his five minutes not to ask questions from the witnesses, uh, some of whom were cattle producers, but to grandstand on this piece of legislation that he introduced. And in that testimony, he actually said that animal agriculture tortures animals and poisons air and water. Uh, this is not someone who wants to have a real conversation. This is someone with a radical agenda that they want to impose at all costs. So this, this bill has been brought before, or bills similar to it have been brought before by Senator Booker himself, and we've seen other similar, um, you know, on the state level as well. Why, I mean, you said it, they have a radical agenda, but why do they still, um, why do they bring these bills if they don't seem to go anywhere? Why keep introducing it? Well, a lot of it has to do with uh, less so a policy objective and more so a political objective. You know, I think, I can't remember what the statistic is, but it's somewhere less than 10%, and I'm going to say probably less than 5% of all the bills that get introduced in any Congress actually end up becoming enacted. Um, a lot of it is just capturing the news cycle, right? You introduce this bill, you put out a press release on it, you get a lot of props in your home district or your home state. Um, and that uh, is a good way for you to message back to your voting base saying, hey, look, I'm here ad ad advocating for the priorities of people in my district or these special interest groups that have a big presence in my state or my district. Um, that, that, that also plays a role. But also, you know, there are a lot of bills that end up getting passed that are kind of serially introduced Congress after Congress and they don't pick up traction and they don't pick up traction and they don't pick up traction. And then all of a sudden the stars align, there is a grand path forward to package that in with another piece of legislation uh, that makes it harder for other people to say no to. And that's really what we do here at NCBA, right? Is trying to make sure that those types of policy writers, as we call them, uh, don't make it across the finish line. So we can go to House and Senate leadership and say, listen, if this piece of legislation were enacted, it would fundamentally alter and destroy, quite frankly, the cattle industry and the cattle business as we know it today. 
Um, and so that's why it's important that even though the odds of uh, the Farm System Reform Act getting floor time by itself in the House and Senate is virtually none, uh, the odds of it getting attached to another package are not zero. And so we have to take that threat very seriously and we have to continue to make sure that we're working with our allies in, in Congress, uh, both Republicans and Democrats to reiterate that uh, this is something that uh, would, would totally upend our industry as we know it. Well, and I love that you, you said both Republicans and Democrats, because especially from agriculture, we, we tend, and maybe this is production agriculture, we tend to be more Republican. It just is, is what it seems in my community. I could be making a broad statement, but how we have to come across the aisle if we're ever going to make it in the future, you know, because this bill, like you said, could easily be dog-eared somewhere else um, and thrown in into something else. And all of a sudden it's it's passed. And we've seen this in Colorado, like the Pause Act made it way farther than it ever should have. And, and that could happen in this case. So like, how do we be maybe a little more sensitive to these things instead of just blowing them up and like, oh, Booker's at it again. How do we be a little more aware maybe as producers or people that are allies for, for agriculture and for our industry? You know, the thing that I always tell people is, you know, it is okay to have questions. It's okay to be concerned about the way that we produce beef in this country. A lot of our standard operating procedures, take brandings, for example, take uh, animal health practices, any number of them. You know, if you're approaching our industry with no knowledge of what we're doing, or more importantly, why we're doing it, it can seem very foreign and it can seem even scary in some cases. There's nothing wrong with having those types of questions. There's nothing wrong with trying to understand why it is we do what we do. And similarly, there's nothing wrong with, you know, if there is a better way to do business, there's nothing wrong with exploring that and possibly even implementing that on your operation. Where we run into trouble as producers in the ag sector is quickly dismissing some of these proposals as, well, they just don't understand. Well, let's get to the root of that. Why don't they understand? You know, and, you know, in some cases, as is the case with Senator Booker, and it has been proven time and again, there's just no interest to engage in a real conversation. It's a lot of political grandstanding. And unfortunately, that is quite prevalent and common in Washington, D.C. But if you start to look at the root of some of the uh, some of the people that are asking these questions, some of the consumers that have questions and maybe don't understand, right? It's important that we take the time to educate folks about what, why, would, why it is we do what we do and, and how we have learned over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to maximize our ability to raise animals efficiently and in a way that is actually better both for us as producers and for the animals themselves. Um, and so I think that being uh, willing to approach that conversation and have some of those difficult uh, discussions is, is really pivotal to turning the tide on some of these issues. You brought up the Paws Act. That's a great example, right? Because um, if you want to boil it down, if you're pro Paws Act and you're looking at that uh, through trying to capture a voter's attention, you have to boil down this very complex policy into a bumper sticker slogan. And it's really easy. Do you, are, do you care about treating animals well? Then you should support this initiative. Well, that's not actually what it's designed to do, uh, but it has a catchy slogan. It's really important that we don't back down from opportunities that are presented to us to go a little bit further, dig a little bit deeper, and maybe even bring to light some of these uh, questions that people have and start to answer them a little bit better. 
So with Senator Booker's unwillingness to have a conversation like this, um, I mean, you alluded to it a little bit by, you know, talking to consumers who have these questions, but how can producers, you know, cattle producers, animal ag producers in general, how can they make sure that their views are heard on things like this um, in a way that actually makes a difference or a way that actually makes it so that um, their voice truly is heard and not, you know, just thrown into the melting pot? You know, it's, it's really, it sounds really cliche because we say it a lot, right? But you really do need to have a dialogue with those people that represent you. Um, talk, call your congressman, call your senators, let them know that, you know, there are some things out there that are, that represent real threats to your operation. Or even on the flip side, right, that kind of grassroots advocacy goes back to things that are beneficial as well. Um, I'll give you a great example, right, in the, in the very early days of COVID-19, when we knew that uh, producers were going to be losing money as a result of some of these packing plant shutdowns and feedlots getting really backed up and local butchers scheduling dates like 18 months in advance, we knew that that was going to cause a significant strain on producers' bottom lines. And so NCBA uh, went to Capitol Hill and said, hey, we need to have some assistance for these individuals. And largely because of the amount of phone calls that these House and Senate offices received, we were able to get uh, around $13 billion allocated to USDA for distribution to assist farmers and ranchers through the coronavirus food assistance program. Um, that would not have happened if these members of Congress and senators weren't hearing directly from producers, uh, whether they're cattle ranchers, whether they're dairy producers, uh, whether they're hog farmers. Uh, it, it, it really doesn't matter what uh, sector of the ag industry you operate in. It's critical that your lawmakers can hear directly from you. Otherwise, they're not going to know, right? We talked a little bit about policy writers, right, and why those are so dangerous. You know, oftentimes, uh, just the way that Washington, D.C. works today, and we can talk another time about whether this is the right way to do business or not, but there are a couple major pieces of legislation that move every year, every five years, uh, or, or what have you. And because it's so difficult to pass legislation individually, anything that is a, a must pass just gets kind of gets thrown onto these, whatever's moving at the time, whatever has the best chance of moving. And it's important for lawmakers to know like, hey, this bill that has never gotten any traction ever, <laughs> it's still very bad for our industry. That way they know as they're having negotiations, look, I, I can't support that. So if you put that in this bill, that's something that I can't go home to my constituents and say, you know, sorry, I, I, I had to vote for this piece of legislation. It gives them significantly more negotiating power in those discussions that happen more behind the scenes. Um, so staying engaged. And then also, like I said, don't be afraid to have those difficult conversations, whether it's with a consumer or a lawmaker or, or somebody else from the industry, right? It's important that we continue to have an open dialogue so that we can start to build some trust in our production methods. Well, and I think too, when you said, um, like going to your lawmaker or the stuff that happens behind the scenes, it's, it's being ahead of the game too. Like we've seen this time and time again, but, but being proactive rather than reactive because we we as human beings are really great at being reactive, especially we've seen that in the last couple of years, um, but, but being more proactive and how as producers, sometimes I get where I'm focused on my day-to-day -day job or I'm with the cows a lot of times, how can I 
as an individual, stay a little more proactive in noticing things coming down the pipeline or making those phone calls or having those conversations. Because we get we get busy, especially this time of year when you're cutting grain and you're starting to precondition calves and stuff like we're busy. But if there's something happening in D.C. that needs our, our attention or needs just a phone call, how do we stay on top of some of that? So it's important to stay engaged, and there's a lot of different ways you can do that, right? There are a ton of entities here in Washington, D.C. that are ag-focused that put out daily newsletters. Some of them put out twice-daily newsletters, so you can keep track of what's going on here in Washington, D.C. But, you know, and I might be a little bit biased here, I think the best way to do it is to join a trade so a trade association, whether it's uh, NCBA or the National Pork Producers Council or the National Chicken Council, you know, be a part of those trade associations because your membership dues dollars go towards uh, funding full-time positions whose sole job, like myself, is to monitor this situation in real time because you do get busy. You are out there operating a ranch, and especially this time of year, you know, you're getting ready to trail cattle. You're getting ready for, for the winter. You know, you're trying to get hay up, uh, and so you don't really have the time to be monitoring all of these different House and Senate committees, all of these different federal rulemakings, and so that's one of the big benefits of a trade association. We will monitor that stuff. We'll stay on top of it. And when there's a need for producers to engage, we let them know. And uh, that's the, the main reason why NCBA has been so successful in Washington, D.C. for the last 50 years is because we have a, a grassroots membership that will answer the call when we put one out. Um, you can see evidence of that going back to uh, when we uh, delisted the gray wolf. Um, a lot of uh, ranchers, particularly in the West, that have dealt with wolf predation issues for decades. You know, they answered the call. They called their members of Congress. They called their senators. Uh, we saw a case where uh, President Obama and his Fish and Wildlife Service uh, promulgated a rule to delist wolves in the lower 48. The Trump administration followed suit and did their own. It was a it was a bipartisan issue. And a lot of that goes back to, again, that grassroots policy engagement process. And if you don't have the time to, to uh, stay on top of that in real time, which most producers don't because they're busy trying to put food on American dinner plates, you know, that's where those trade associations really do come in handy because we are uh, constantly monitoring that uh, to be sure that we're giving you the most current and up-to-date information so that you can advocate on your own behalf when that becomes appropriate. Very cool. And I think it's, I mean, it's evident how passion you guys, passionate you guys are and how I can guarantee you, I don't want to live in Washington, D.C., so God bless you for, for taking that stance and, and being there, um, you know, traipsing around the halls of the Capitol and keeping your nose to the ground, because I can't, like I said, I have a hard time focusing on what's what's even going on in my local county and, and stuff, let alone state and national-wide, so I, I agree. I think NCBA and national organizations are a great, great thing. I know you do get some pushback. Um, guess what besides Booker what other give a snippet of what other legislations kind of on your docket that you're tracking heavy this year um, that you think maybe producers or just general agriculture should be kind of aware of yeah so outside of the cattle markets portfolio where there's been a ton of dialogue about what's the best way to transact cattle how can we bring more transparency to the cattle marketplace you know we've done a lot of work through our membership uh, in working groups and committees to try and identify ways that we can improve transparency in the marketplace. 
and those discussions are, are still ongoing, especially in the context of uh, livestock mandatory reporting, which is uh, an act of Congress that was passed in 1999 that requires packers to publish uh, their information through USDA on how many cattle they bought, what prices they paid for cattle, and it's a good market uh, information tool for producers to use as they're uh, entering into these negotiations for uh, cattle transactions. You know, outside of that, sustainability climate policy is going to be at the root of everything we do in Washington, D.C. for the foreseeable future. Um, it's, it's something that is a high priority for this administration. It's a high priority for leadership in both the House and the Senate. Luckily, in the cattle industry, we have a very good sustainability story to tell. Um, you know, we, we are uh, providing ecosystem services through grazing on a myriad of different landscapes that otherwise are not suited for food production. And we're constantly looking to improve upon that good story we have to tell. Um, at our NCBA convention two weeks ago, we actually announced a goal to be carbon neutral by 2040 and laid out a series of steps to uh, achieve that goal. And if you want more information on that, I'd encourage folks to visit our website, ncba.org, where they can find some more information on just exactly how we plan about uh, to go about doing that. You know, the other thing I think that is uh, really, really timely for right now is, is this uh, infrastructure package that's being debated on Capitol Hill. Um, you know, we all love roads and we all love bridges, um, but there's a lot of things that are good, getting tied into this infrastructure package that are not traditional infrastructure. And uh, at, at last count, you know, there's, there's proposals out there that surpass the $1 trillion cost mark. And you got to pay for that somehow. And one of the ways that they've talked about doing that is revisiting the tax code and making adjustments to the death tax, uh, which is uh, very problematic for our members that are trying to pass the, the farmer ranch down to that next generation. You know, looking at making tweaks to the stepped up basis, which would dramatically increase the tax burden on America's farmers and ranchers who are already operating on razor thin margins right now. So that's... Um, that's probably our number one focus in Washington, D.C. right now is preserving those tax policies that really do uh, promote agriculture and don't place an undue burden on those people who are putting food on plates. Um, and then, of course, as we start to look a little bit more long term, uh, we've got another farm bill that's coming up here in a couple of years. Uh, there's some uh, vaccine bank for foot and mouth disease priorities that we'll be going back and, and, and asking about. And then we also want to keep all of the programs on the conservation title uh, voluntary based so that they work a little bit better and uh, producers can tailor those programs to work the best on their operation. So just a, a, a couple things going on. Uh, you know, we've got we've got nine lobbyists in the D.C. office and all nine of us have uh, an issue area with several things going on in them right now. Um, and so there's there's no shortage of issues to work on, uh, but those are kind of the highlights for for the foreseeable future here. <laughs> but you guys aren't very busy at all. Oh no, not at all. We've been <laughs> kicking back, you know, leaving the office about three. No, I'm just kidding. We uh, we've had a lot going on, but I tell you what. Um, just me personally, you know, I grew up uh, in, in the cattle industry. I have a cattle background and uh, I've spent a lot of time. A lot of my close friends uh, are still involved directly in production ag. And um, I got to say that living in D.C. is not the most fun, especially for an Idaho boy. Major culture shock when I first moved here just about five years ago. And uh, it 
it really does having that background, having those friends that are out there. And it, it really does allow me to say, okay, what I'm doing here, it is important work. And uh, it's, it's, it, it gives you the strength that you need to kind of continue on. And, you know, cause there are days that you get frustrated that a bill you've been working on isn't going anywhere, or, you know, a, a member of Congress isn't uh, in the right place on an issue and it, it can get discouraging. Um, but having those relationships and uh, people that you can kind of put a face to who you're representing, it's, it's very helpful and kind of rekindling that uh, desire to be here and working in this environment. Well, yeah, no, I think that's great. And I do have to, before we go too much farther or start, start signing off, Tanner's also an auctioneer. So that's why he's probably <laughs> coming to Idaho over Labor Day. That so you should correct. just give, just as an outro, you should auction something off real quick, just to spice things up a little oh, bit. Oh, goodness gracious. You know, I am going to sell the Twin Falls County Fair uh, over on Labor Day, actually. And for the grand champion steer, I'd probably ask for, oh, I don't know, about $5. That quarter hit five and a quarter, a bit of a quarter, a bit of a half, five, fifteen, seventy-five, 75, a bit of a six, that have been the quarter, quarter, half, that have been the 75, six and 75 and seven, seven, that have been in here, sold at six and 75. Woohoo! Oh, <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> well, thanks. thanks for that, Tanner. And where can, um, do you have any more parting thoughts and where can um, listeners find more info? I know you mentioned ncba.org, but if there's other links or plugs you want to give, um, what would they be? You know, uh, you can always follow us on Twitter at BeefUSA. We're constantly posting updates there. Um, and then if you want more information on what we're doing on the policy side specifically, you can visit policy.ncba.org. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Tanner, for joining us. And we thank you listeners for tuning into this week's episode. If you have any more questions, comments, concerns, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well, or directly email us at talk to us at millennialag.com. And until next week, we are Millennial Ag. Mm-hmm.